So one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten about preaching was this. Chris, you don't have to tell them everything that you learned. Now, this is sermon number 14 for me here at Bethany. Not that I'm counting. (laughs) And so far, I would say that it's actually gotten easier for me every sermon not to tell you everything that I've learned. But this is my first time preaching on a subject here that is very near and dear to my heart. uh, Very near and dear to my calling. And so... Deciding what I was going to say today, let's just say that we are barely scratching the surface. And if you want to know more on the subject, it's best you take me out for a really long lunch. (laughs) But I hope you're ready because today is about life, the universe, and everything. We have been following the story of the people of Israel as they left Egypt, followed God in the wilderness for two generations, and then entered the land of Canaan. And in all of the weeks that we've been at this, there's one piece that we haven't really talked about yet so far. It's really hard to think of the story of Moses and of Israel without asking ourselves questions about the Ten Commandments. And so today I want to start in God's prologue to those commandments in Exodus chapter 19. Now each week of this series has been sort of a little out of order with the story. So let me just put things into context for you briefly. You'll recall that the baby Moses was rescued from the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in the palace, but eventually he has to flee to Egypt, in the, flee from Egypt to the wilderness, where he eventually marries and he takes on the shepherding life of his new family. But then he has this encounter with God through a burning bush, and he's called to witness to God at a place called Mount Sinai. And God commissions Moses to return to Egypt. And so Moses goes and he confronts Pharaoh to let Israel go free. Israel is then freed from Egypt. And now just about a year after his moment at the burning bush, Moses returns to Mount Sinai with the nation of Israel in tow. And so after they set up camp at the base of this mountain, he hikes back to the top to meet with God again. And then God says this to him, starting in verse 3. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and you keep my commandment, Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So God tells Moses that if Israel will agree to this covenant, that this new relationship between the creator and what is essentially a large family, he will make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so that this next bit is how God is going to do that. And so God says these words. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is very different than what had happened between the gods that Israel were familiar with those that they had experienced during their time in slavery. Now, the idea that there was only one God, that in itself was just mind-blowingly revolutionary. It was a given back then that there were gods everywhere. 
There was a God for the stream. There was a God for the desert. There was a God for the sun and one for the moon and one for the trees. But to make things more interesting for them, God had already actually done something for them. This relationship began with God freeing them from slavery. They hadn't done anything yet. The gods that they knew just didn't do that. In Egypt, the gods were pretty fickle. They demanded things before you could get what you wanted, often at a very steep price. In a lot of ways, the Egyptian pantheon of gods, or the Roman pantheon of gods later on, were like bickering children with superpowers. But apparently this god is the god, the one that made the stars in the heavens. Apparently those things didn't actually have gods. This God begins this new relationship by emphasizing who he is and that he's already done great things for them to show them his goodness. God acted first. And so everything that is to follow, this covenant is going to be in response to the mercy that God has offered Israel in liberating them from bondage. Not to enter a new bondage unwillingly, but to offer a relationship. And so because this is a relationship, God is setting up a response to be one that is motivated by love and by gratitude, not by obligation for services rendered or by punishment. Israel is given a choice to enter in this covenant. And then there's the matter of this introduction that God spoke these words. We generally call the list that follows the Ten Commandments, but in Hebrew it's actually better translated as the Ten Words. There's a lot implied in this word to the Israelites. In Hebrew, a word is not just a mere communication tool. It is a way in which God makes himself known to humanity. And so we call the scriptures the Word of God because they are a means by which God reveals himself to us. And this is the reason why Jesus is called the Word, the Logos in Greek. Because in Jesus, we knew God in the flesh, in person. The relationship that God is initiating with the people of Israel begins with God saying, I am who I am. I am the one who made everything. I am the one who frees slaves. And I am the one who's going to make you a holy nation. One that is sacred and special by making you, by helping you become like me. The ten words, though they're written as commands, are really describing in situations with which the Israelites would have been intimately familiar, the very character and behaviors of God the King and Creator himself. And so these words are helping us to see not only the best way to relate to God, but how to imitate him. And so the Israelites' response is to be an imitation of the creator and king. So the first four commandments, or the first four words, are how we are to relate to God directly. Now, I'm I'm not going to go through the whole text. It's fairly lengthy. But the first four describe with detail the absolute exclusivity of this relationship. If God is to be our God... God says, nothing else gets to be God for you. If we are to try to have multiple gods at once, God is saying that they would now be in conflict. 
No other gods are good or merciful or hold any of the other character traits that God does. Nothing even comes close. Not the sun, not the moon, not money or food or sex, not other relationships, not our preferences, not even Facebook, not even our children. Everything else is secondary to our relationship with God. But the beauty in saying that is this. The next six words are all about how, they are, how we are to relate to God indirectly. Because they're about how we get along with one another. God wants us to relate to him through our ethical integrity, through self-giving, others-oriented love. Because that is who God is. So by putting God first, everything else now falls into place. Our relationships with our neighbors, our relationships with family and children, with our preferences, even with creation and with our resources. Because our everyday life, all of that pragmatic stuff that we worry about, all of it matters to God. And so while these ten words are written as commands, they're really more of an invitation to trust in God, to suspend our worry and our anxiety over how all of our different needs are going to be met. To trust God for them. Because if we are always worrying about our needs, which is really another way of saying that we're always putting our needs above those of others and above our relationship with God, then out of necessity, we end up competing with each other for scarce resources. But if God is creator, which means everything is God's, and if God is for us in this relationship, which means that we can trust him, then we are freed to value others as God does, rather than prioritizing ourselves. There no longer needs to be a rivalry. We are freed to be peacemakers. And all of this is in response to God's goodness, God's character, God's faithfulness, and God's mercy. Now fast forward about a thousand years, and Paul the Apostle is writing about the same thing to the church in Rome. Now the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans describe again who God is. His character and faithfulness and holiness and his glory and his otherness. And then Paul writes this. Therefore, I urge you all, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Does that sound familiar? It's, it's like everything in this book is related somehow. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translated this text in the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants for you and quickly respond to it. 
Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So in response to the mercy God has offered us, freedom from the captivity and the oppression of sin, freedom to choose adoption into this new relationship with God, the King and Creator, we are to offer ourselves as living, not dead, as living sacrifices. We're to allow ourselves to be transformed, completely morphed into something brand new from the inside out, to become people whose motivations and behaviors imitate that of God. And Paul says, that is worship. Worship is about this relationship that we've been offered by God. We don't start it. God is the one who initiated it. Before we even knew who God was, God made himself known to humanity. Abraham, to the people of Israel, finally to all humanity, By becoming like us in the birth, the life, the suffering, the death, and ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus is God made human. Because of what God did and because of who God is, we are offered this relationship. And our response to pursue that relationship, our choice to imitate the one who comes to us, that is worship. Paul goes on in verse 3 and really through the most of the rest of the book of Romans to illustrate what that proper response to God's mercy looks like. It's a life of humility and service, of love put into action, of using our gifts with which we were created and so many other things. Now we're in week 6 of this series called The Forgotten Ways and I hope you're starting to see how interconnected all of these missional markers really are. Now, the first marker, the centrality of the word of God, that's our core. If a word is how God reveals himself to us, then God's word, namely Jesus, the word of God, and the scriptures that reveal him, need to be at the very heart of everything else. And since Jesus is also called the light of the world, our icon for that is the sun. But with the exception of that first marker, the centrality of the word, every other marker actually falls underneath today's. So in week two, our icon is the leaf because a leaf takes what the sun offers and then grows. It transforms. The second mark is a life-transforming walk with Jesus. And so we learned that sharing our stories and what God has done in our lives, now he's still moving among us and transforming us, helps us and helps others in that life-transforming walk. But this is the essence of what it means to worship, to be transformed, to surrender to God in what Paul calls a living sacrifice to allow God to form and to transform us. And then in the third week, we learned that we are to become good news people, that God is transforming us for a purpose, and that our transformed lives and our transformed words can be the mouthpiece through which God speaks to the world. And so our icon is a microphone, the intentional and engaging witness. And again, this transformation thing keeps coming up, becoming good news people who imitate God Those are the people who are worshiping God. They are responding to his greatness. And if we are to be people whose presence and actions are good news, then it means good relationships with one another. We're connected. And like the second six of the Ten Commandments, the way that we relate to one another can be, if done properly, 
an indirect way of relating to God, to responding to his mercy. And so Mark number four, the compelling Christian community is illustrated as a network. And you're going to see this through the whole rest of the series too. A global perspective, responding to the spirit of God across cultural boundaries. In compassion, mercy, and justice, those are core tenets of God's character. Just like sacrificial and generous living and giving. Even the last two markers describe leaders who imitate God, who responded to God's call to lead this compelling community, who facilitate structures for the organization of the church that bear good fruit. That more and more people in more and more places are coming to a new relationship with God the Creator and King and growing in that relationship. And because God is Creator and King, our icon for this week, the heartfelt worship marker, is a crown. See, I told you that today is about life, the universe, and everything. I really meant that. Worship is everything. I spent hours this week hoping to narrow down the focus today into maybe how important it is that you're here every Sunday or something else. But instead, every word that I read expanded everything. Worship is cosmic in its implications. And someday I hope to go through more of that with you. How worship is connected to Eden and to temples and to priesthoods and to every strand through the scriptures. But for today, I want you to take away that everything about worship comes down to responding to God's greatness. And yes, it is important that we are here every week. And that is why it's so important. If worship is about responding to God's mercy, then our corporate worship, this thing that we do here every week, is about responding to God's mercy together. As we sing, as we pray, as we hear from the scriptures, as we celebrate the sacraments of communion and baptism, as we are sent from this place into our neighborhoods and homes and workplaces... All of this is meant to bring us deeper in relationship to God, the creator and king. And so I hope that every week you come expectant. I come here, I hope that you come here aching to hear from God together. Because this isn't just about checking off some box in our religion category or filling a weekly schedule requirement. This is about who we are because of who God is and what God is doing. Your participation matters because this is about God's story. And God yearns to include you in that. We model by participating for every generation. Our children need to see what a growing relationship with God looks like. If you sing, they sing. If you read the scriptures, they will imitate you. If you grow, they notice. So I'm in pretty sensitive to music. I know you'd never know it. Um, I, when I was a little kid, uh, we went to see Snow White, and we had to leave the movie theater every time The Witch came out because I was freaking out. So when I tell you that the church I grew up in was not known for its music, I hope that you hear that this did not help my relationship with organized religion. The organist there somehow managed to turn even Amazing Grace into a dirge. And so I actually refused to sing in church until I was 16. 
<laughs> now look at me, right? <laughs> so when I got to chapel in seminary, I was clearly carrying around some baggage related to organ-led church music. You could say that I wasn't exactly expecting much. So one day I come into chapel, and uh, the organist started playing. As usual, I rolled my eyes and hoped that this would be a short one. You know, not like a seven-verse one, but maybe like two. And so the congregation all starts singing along. And I kind of recognize the hymn, but I probably had tuned it out a long time ago. But I remember standing there and suddenly feeling like something had changed in the room. And so I look up out of this bulletin with which I'm trying to keep myself very occupied and tried to figure out what that was. Now everyone in the room had started singing at the top of their lungs. And to put this in context for you, most of them were my age or younger. Hands are suddenly raised in the air as they're belting out these lyrics My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And I'll never forget that moment. I had this realization that maybe the problem wasn't the music. Maybe the problem was me. Now the church I grew up in didn't really help things. But even there, when the music started, I was not looking to respond to God at all. I wasn't listening to him in the words or in the tune. But in the moment in seminary when everything shifted, it piqued my curiosity. And as soon as I started looking for God in what was happening, wouldn't you know it, it drew me in to participate. And so that classic hymn, And Can It Be, is still my favorite of the old hymns. It says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Those are powerful words. Now, I did learn something in that church that I grew up in, the one that mangled amazing grace. No matter where my my family sat every single week, for some reason, a woman named Mrs. Dodge would inevitably find her way behind us. I'm pretty sure it's because she liked hearing my mom sing. But Mrs. Dodge couldn't hold a tune in a bucket. And you know how people who are tone deaf don't really know that they're tone deaf? Mrs. Dodge sang the hymns at the top of her lungs. And it was painful. And I was already not happy to be there. But when I would complain to my mother, she'd always smile and say something like, Yes, but she's making a joyful noise. It doesn't sound good to us, but God loves it. She loves God, and she wants to sing to him. I get it now. 
I get how important it is that we participate, that we're all in this together, even if we don't think we can sing, or we don't like that one song, or we don't like an entire style of music, or the pew isn't really as comfortable as maybe we'd hoped, or some kid is crinkling candy wrappers that grandma gave him, or whatever else is today's distraction. What matters is that we come expecting God to work in us and through us together, which means we come to participate. If we don't expect to hear from God, then we're not going to hear from God. But if we come expecting to hear, the creator and king will never disappoint. Bethany, I mean this question in the most encouraging way. Why are you here? Do you come expecting to meet with God together? Do you come hoping that you'll catch a glimpse of God in his glory or a word of comfort from the Holy Spirit or a new way that you can bear witness to God who is in the world this coming week? Are we ready to open ourselves up to the possibilities of what God is doing in this world and abandon our natural inclinations towards pride and preference and selfishness? And let God mold us through music and liturgy and scripture and prayer. If true worship means offering ourselves as living sacrifices, then it means abandoning ourselves into God's trustworthy care. We were created to worship. We were made for this. And so today we are going to close with a hymn and a song. As the church, we declare the majesty of God's name, which is a way of saying how amazing God is. This is a psalm about the God that we seek to imitate. And so together, let's stand. Would you stand with me? And as the worship team comes up, we're going to read as one voice this psalm of praise as a way of responding to God's greatness and the mercy and the goodness of God. And so together we say these words. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You made your glory higher than heaven. From the mouths of nursing babies, you have laid a strong foundation because of your foes in order to stop vengeful enemies. When I look up to the skies at what your fingers made, the moon and the stars that you set firmly in place, what are human beings that you think about them? What are human beings that you pay attention to them? You've made them only slightly less than divine, crowning them with glory and grandeur. You've let them rule over your handiwork, putting everything under their feet, all sheep and all cattle, the wild animals too, the birds in the sky, the fish of the ocean, everything that travels the pathway of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth.